Blog Talk Radio. to hear a revolution in talk radio, Liberty Talk Radio, where the critical thinking will defrag your mind of propaganda-ridden viruses induced by mass media news programming. No BS here, just the facts. And now we present to you America's quintessential iconoclastic anomaly. Wow. In talk radio, your host, Joe Cristiano. Welcome, everyone, to Liberty Talk Radio, America's libertarian voice, broadcasting from our studio in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to around the world. I'm your host, Joe Cristiano, and this is your antidote to popular talk radio. Today, we're pleased and absolutely honored to have a returning guest, the president of the Future of Freedom Foundation, Mr. Jacob Horberger, uh, and he will be discussing today the situation with the tariffs around the world and see where we stand and maybe we can resolve this issue. It seems to be very contentious. Um, I'm not very happy with it, and we'll see what Jacob has to say. He's written some very interesting articles on it, and quite frankly, I agree with him uh, very much in, in, in all these uh, matters. Uh, also, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, my, my wife and I are financial supporters of the Future Freedom Foundation. We think that much of the organization and, and everything that they do. And so let's put, put there he is. <laughs> Jacob, welcome back to Liberty Talk Radio. No, it's an honor to be here, Joe. Thank you for having me. Thanks for your great support of the Future Freedom Foundation. Well, the honor's all ours, I believe. Uh, you know, I, can I go on a, a, a one-minute diatribe as an opening? Sure. Okay. Uh, I'm having such a, a a problem with the countenance, I guess, of our president. Uh, to me, he comes across as if he has been elected president, as if a person is elected president of a corporation where he has the ultimate power to do everything and anything. And it really concerns me. He really thinks that he is president of the United States, means he owns the United States. And not only that, I think he, he includes the entire rest of the world. In, in, and so whatever he says is, 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 is gospel, and everyone has to abide by it. And this, to, to me, the president has no power whatsoever. In fact, the president's only job is to, is to be a check on the Congress to make sure they don't add a line and infringe upon the equal rights of all the citizens. And yet he seems to be doing the exact reverse. And I think the situation we're going to talk about tonight is the, um, uh, the tariffs that, that he's contesting. Um, but he's taking the same type of attitude. And this really disturbs me. And what disturbs me further is that the people most people have been so indoctrinated by our government school system that they believe that the president is all-powerful, he's king of the United States, and whatever he says, God, then we have to obey it. And I think we have a multitude of problems which really culminate into what the situation we have today, and I apologize for the diatribe. <laughs> oh, there's no need to apologize. I think it's a perfect description of what's going on. 
and especially with respect to the subject we're going to discuss today, and that's tariffs. I mean, this what he is doing with tariffs is the absolute essence of dictatorial conduct. Now, we discussed the destructive nature of tariffs, what they do to destroy people's liberty as well as their economic well-being. But there's another dimension to this that is classic dictatorial conduct, and that is that he is making the decision on an ad hoc, arbitrary basis, how much to levy, levy tariffs, impose tariffs against each country. He makes that decision. Now, in, in, in a democracy, in a representative government, the idea is that if the president wants to do something like that, he has to go to the legislative branch. He has to ask for a law that does these things. Not here. He just decides he wants to impose tariffs against China or against Canada or against Europe. He unilaterally does it. He decides how much of the tariffs he's going to impose. He sometimes withdraws them on a whim. This is the very essence of dictatorial conduct, where a dictator is saying, I will dictate. I don't need no stake in legislation. I will dictate what's going to happen, and here it is. Yeah, and it it, it seems that the pro-Trump crowd is proud of that. They they, they they welcome that. They say, we finally have a strong leader in office that will lead us to prosperity. And there's no speaking to these people. I, and I, I, I've quit a long time ago from the very get-go. Uh, I had a couple of bad conversations, and I said, never again. Um, and, and what bothers me further, it's it, he acts as if everyone before him, all the possessors, who may have had a, um, a, a, a a hand in the decision on the tariffs that we have today, they're all wrong. Only he's right, and whatever tariffs we have today are all wrong, and they're all bad for the United States, as if the people who impose these tariffs or agree to them, you know, made them willingly contrary to the interests of the United States. And, and obviously that can't be because... Now, we make mistakes and whatever, but shouldn't, if, if there's a particular tariff that appears to be um, uneven at the point, uh, detrimental to the free trade genre, should he go back to that country diplomatic and say, you know, you're charging us 25% to, to, to trade with you and we're, you know, we're charging you 5%. That was okay 20 years ago, but there should be adjustments made. And shouldn't that be part of the diplomatic core talking about that and trying to find out why is it 25% versus 5%, whatever the case may be, rather than just dictatorially proclaiming that we're going to do away with it or increase it? Well, I, I would say that that is the second best solution. Um, first of all, let me say I agree with you on Trump acolytes. Uh, they have this concept of like a great man theory of government that if you just elect a great man or who they consider a great man or a great woman and invest him with, with omnipotent power and then just trust him to do the right thing. Well, this is exactly opposite to the type of government that the framers bequeathed to us. Right. I mean, there's a famous line by George Washington that let no more be said about the confidence we put in our rulers. Let, let us bind them down by the, by the restraints of the Constitution. Right. Is that we want a government of very limited powers. We don't want this dictatorial conduct if we want a free society. And I think a lot of acolytes 
just don't see that. They say, we've elected a great man. Now let's trust and invest him with omnipotent power. Now, I, I understand the point you're making. And the reason I say it's a second best solution is, that, well, it's obviously better than having dictatorial conduct. That if some country has a 25% tariff, yes, I would say a second best solution is not the president to retaliate, have the power to retaliate, but you use the dip diplomatic channels to try to get that tariff reduced. Here's the idea, though, in my opinion, Joe. I mean, free trade is a fundamental right. I mean, we just celebrate that principle in, in on the 4th of July, that every person, not just Americans, has been endowed with certain fundamental rights, and they include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, clearly, liberty involves trading whomever you want, anywhere in the world. It's my money. Why can't I spend it anywhere in the world? Why is that not part of my freedom? Why is it not part of my pursuit of happiness? It is. Therefore, the best thing that the United States can do, indeed the best thing any country can do, is in, in response to tariffs that other governments put on their citizens, just eliminate the tariffs here in the United States. No negotiations, no no dictatorial conduct, liberate the American people. Now, does that mean that there might still be a tariff in France on some good? Yeah. But that's something that hurts the French people. Right. The idea is let's liberate the American people unilaterally, free trade unilaterally, and then unleash the power of the private sector. Yeah, and uh, you're right. We should be um, we should have the liberty to trade with whom we want. Whether or not that country imposes a fifty percent, I mean fifty percent percent tariff on us for sending them something, that's a decision we have to make of whether or not we want to deal with that country because we perceive them as being under, if that's the case. But um, the marketplace, you know, just like the, 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 any marketplace, that levels a playing field. The marketplace levels a playing field, not politicians. Absolutely. You know, you, nobody elected the president of the United States to be the, re, the business representative of American companies. American businessmen can handle their own affairs. So if, for example, Cuba says, well, we're not going to allow you know, Coca-Cola to be sold here. Well, that's something for Coca-Cola to work out. Mm -hmm. If they want to go to Cuba and try to work out a deal, that, that's up to them. It's not up to the president to say, well, I'm going to be the representative of Coca-Cola and go in there and demand that they let in Coca-Cola. We just leave the private sector free to manage their affairs. And if Coca-Cola says, well, we don't get into Cuba, then they don't go to Cuba. But in the meantime, here, here's what they do with tariffs. They say, well, Cuba is shooting its own citizens in the foot by having this, this barrier that prohibits them from enjoying Coca-Cola. So what we're going to do is we're going to shoot the American people in the foot in retaliation by prohibiting them from buying Cuban cigars. Well, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but the idea is just liberate Americans, and then possibly the world will follow. I mean, a lot of the world admires the principles that America was founded on. But if they don't, well, leave it to the private sector to deal with that problem. How did the government ever get involved in the, all these tariffs. I know as a, a new new country, uh, when we first established ourselves as a nation, I think we had something like a 3% tariff on everything that came in, and that 3% tariff, 
and I, excuse me if my numbers, but paid for the entire federal government. There was no federal tax, no no taxes whatsoever, and that was used to pay basically for the operations of government. So we didn't have to tax the people. But everyone said it was a very small amount. You know, it, it went to the government. When you got your paycheck, if you made fifty dollars, you took home fifty dollars, and it, it should be a great system at the time. But we lost that. That, that is a fascinating question. And, and he, here's what happens. Okay, there's the break with Great Britain. Now, now we keep in mind that when we're talking about break, we're talking about British citizens. The, the, the people that signed the Declaration of Independence were as much British citizens as you and I are American citizens. We often forget that. We think, oh, they were great Americans. No, they're great British people. Right. <laughs> and they're setting up arms against their own government. So they succeed in that endeavor. They're, they're essentially separating, uh, seceding from, from England. They established their own country. They operate under a government for about 13 years called the Articles of Confederation. A lot of people realize that we don't have, we have had the same governmental system throughout our history. For the first 13 years, the federal government was operating under the Articles of Confederation. Well, what that meant was each state was sort of like a independent sovereign country, and they'd all come together to make confederation, um, a group that has common interests, a group of independent sovereign entities. Well, they, they so mistrusted the power of government and the potential power of government to do bad things to them that, that the federal government had virtually no powers at all. I mean, get this. 13 years, the federal government did not have any power to tax at all. No power to tax. And yet, here you had a government operating for 13 years with no power to tax. Well, so when they meet in the Constitutional Convention, and it's to, to modify the Articles of Confederation because there's problems, there's trade wars taking place. And they said, well, let's get together and see if we can resolve the problem. And so they come out secretly these deliberations with a new proposal saying we propose a new federal government but didn't want to give the the federal government power to impose an income tax they called a direct tax they knew how it would turn out when internal revenue service that would terrorize people a government that seized whatever it wanted out of people's uh, pockets with an income tax so they were ardently opposed to income taxes because they didn't trust the federal government and so they said, well, let's have what they call an indirect tax to fund the government. And that's how they got the tariff. The tariff is simply, it's nothing more really than a sales tax. It's a sales tax on foreign goods. Is it better than an tax? Absolutely. You don't have an internal revenue service. You don't have to go to the post office on April 15th to file a tax return. You don't have the intrusion in your financial affairs. You don't have to worry about keeping track of deductions. All you're doing is paying a, a sales tax on a foreign good, and that's what was funding the federal government. And you're right. It was very small. Why? Because there was no welfare state, no Social Security, no Medicare, no farm subsidies, no national security state, no Pentagon, CIA, no foreign wars, NSA, no drug war, economic regulations. I mean, it was a very unique society, and they didn't even have immigration controls. Well, when a federal government has power to essentially do nothing except protect the, the country in the event of an invasion, that didn't cost very much money. And 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 now we have the opposite. In fact, the you know the indexes which come out every couple of years by so the think tanks, um, 
there's one which is the uh, the uh, uh, company free index, the uh, you know the personal freedom index, and whatever. And the United States loses ground every year. It's like number 27 in the the um, small business freedom index. I think it's called or whatever. And we used number one in all of those categories. 30 years ago, we were number one or pretty close to number one. And now we're 14 in index, 27 in index, and losing ground every single year. And and no one seems to be concerned about that. And and I think the harmful part about having someone like Trump in office is that people are welcoming his tyrannic you know, rhetoric, saying he's going to make America great again. He's going to impose all these things. And that's the exact opposite of what we need. We needed the reverse of that. We needed him to say, hey, Congress, you do it, and I'm going to stop you if you get out of, again, get out of hand. And at least we have checks and trolls in our government. We've lost all of that because you never even hear in Congress anymore. They all look to Trump, Trump, waiting for Trump to make another decision. And that scares the heck out of me. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, here's what happened. You, you, you start out with a society that's based on free market principles and a limited government republic. So you have no social security, Medicare, welfare state. You don't have a welfare state. You don't have a Pentagon, CIA, NSA. A totally different type of system under today. Today you have a massive welfare state, IRS, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, foreign bases, uh, domestic bases. It's this giant monstrosity that we libertarians call the welfare warfare state. And the problem is that it's now, it's cracking at the seams. I mean, you've got an out-of-control debt, out-of-control spending, and and nobody wants to give his share of the dole. They say you can't touch Social Security, you can't touch Medicare, you can't touch the Pentagon. And so meanwhile, we're barreling toward the, the edge of this cliff, and people are getting frustrated. Because none of it's working. Social Security is bankrupt. Medicare is bankrupt. They're having to tax young people to ever-increase degrees. It, the immigration crisis has gone on for decades. They won't let go of immigration control. They're convinced they're going to make it work. The drug war is a fiasco. So what, what do they do? They say, we need a great man to fix this, to run it. <laughs> this is the, the history of dictatorships throughout the world. We're going to get the great man to run a system that is inherently defective. When really the solution is very simple, dismantle the welfare state way of life, dismantle the welfare state way of life, and restore the type of government that was intended for America, a limited government republic with a free market economy. Yeah. You know, people put a faith in Adolf Hitler. I was watching a documentary on that, on how he was going to liberate the people and all that, and, uh, you know, and just... They bought into that lock, stock, and barrel, and uh, we, we know the consequences. Um, I, I, let, let me just make a comment on that. That's a very astute observation because, you know, you had that the Enabling Act. After, after there was the Reichstag fire where the terrorists firebombed the Reichstag, Hitler, he could have said, I need to deal with this terrorism problem, and it was a communism problem too because the terrorists were supposed to be communists. And he could have said, I now wield these dictatorial powers. He didn't do that. Went to the to the to the parliament, the legislative branch, and he said, Would you give me temporary dictatorial powers? And there was a huge debate on it in the Reichstag. But he finally got what he wanted. They call it the Enabling Act, where the Parliament said, We're the Reichstag said, We're going to give you 
these emergency temporary dictatorial powers yeah. deal with this emergency. And and so sure enough, every two or three years, Hitler would return to the right bed and say, I need a continuation extension of these problems. Well, you see the same thing happening after 9-11, the terror attack, the war on terrorism. It says that Bush says, I'm a commander in chief, and therefore I need to go to Congress to ask for dictatorial powers. I'm just going to wield them myself. And so we live in a society where the government's assassinating people without due process law, including the United States torturing people, rounding people up, incarcerating them for 10, 15 years at Guantanamo Bay. It's a fascinating parallel there. Yeah. Let me give you another parallel of this. There's a fantastic book called Three New Deeds that compares Franklin Roosevelt, you know, the great man of that time that was charged with dictatorial powers to deal with the Depression, including seizing everybody's gold coins and making a felon out of anybody who owned gold coins, even though that had been the official money of the United States for more than 100 years. But in this book, the author of Civil uh, Bush compares Roosevelt's New Deal with what Hitler and Mussolini were doing in Germany and in Italy. And the parallel is fascinating. The economic policies were very similar. In fact, Hitler wrote a letter to Roosevelt saying, I want to commend you on what you're doing here because we have the same mindset. We have to sacrifice the individual for the greater good of society. Yeah. I know of a couple of people who have moved to Puerto Rico, and they said, well, you know, I'm still an American citizen, but I don't, I don't have to abide by the federal tax law anymore. And so they, they work out of Puerto Rico, and, of course, they do a lot of their work in the United States, and uh, they live pretty well, by the way. You know, and they, they have plenty of money as well. And um, it's, it's been very very interesting. I, I've been thinking about something like that. But but where, where do we, you know, how do we turn this around? It's like we're going in the wrong direction and the, the, the steam locomotive is big. It's, it's barreling down. It's going downhill. And, and there's a few of us with six, you know, trying to <laughs> try to head off. And I, I, I hate to sound pessimistic, but it just seems like so many people that I know that think that Trump is, you know, like thought Hitler, he was the savior of the country. And now Trump is the savior of the country. And I, no, 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 no. Wrong direction. No, we got we to gotta turn this around. And they seem to have lost the, um, the, uh, the, 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 the understanding that we're a nation of individuals, you know, bound by this, by the Constitution, which gives the no power to the government whatsoever. That's lost to them altogether. In fact, if I mention that at a meeting or something like that, they think I'm like a heretic of some sort. Yeah, it's it's the man of the white horse syndrome. That oh, the man of the white horse, he's here to save us. Hmm. And um, but, but look, um, thirty years ago or twenty eight years ago, when I started the Future of Freedom Foundation, uh, and even before that in the seventies when I discovered libertarianism. Nobody knew what libertarianism was. I mean, it, it was uh, it, it was just a, a word that no, just nobody knew. And then as time progressed, I remember there was a time where oh, they were saying, oh, well, that's Lyndon LaRouche, when Lyndon LaRouche was a Democrat. Uh, so people were confused. They, they didn't know what libertarianism is. Everything for today, it's a game changer. Most people now know what libertarianism is about. 
they, they may not agree with every principle, but it's on the table as a philosophy. And, and countless people call themselves libertarians. And look how many people supported Ron Paul in his presidential right. campaign. So this is all room for, the, for optimism in the sense that there's a lot of discontent in the country. You can sense that discontent. People sense something's wrong. Now, you're right. Their, their prescription for this is the bad prescription. In, in large part, because they're getting the diagnosis wrong. But what we need to do as libertarians just, is just putting this case for libertarianism and let the ideas percolate in society. Don't worry about the outcome. Worry mostly about getting a this pure, pristine concept of libertarianism for people to consider, to think about, to ponder. People don't ever hear a libertarian idea. They're not going to consider it. So you've got to keep introducing these ideas into the marketplace and don't worry about the result. Remember, none of us was charged with saving the world or saving the universe. We have to let, we have to believe that freedom can do that on its own. We have to just keep handling what we do best, and that's advancing liberty. Yeah, I, I have such a difficult time. Uh, no matter what co- company I'm, I'm in, uh, it seems that the conversation is always whether or not, you know, Trump versus someone else or whatever, they, they're, they're always talking about politician rather than the policy itself. And um, if you try to introduce some critical thinking saying, well, why do you think we're doing that? Should not we be free to do that? They look at you like you're, you're an anarchist almost. Uh, and it's, yeah. you're almost a big guy by introducing freedom. Um, because they don't have a concept of what real freedom's about. But here's the thing. This is what I've concluded after decades of being in this, this line of endeavor. That is, there, our job is not to convince people to be libertarians. It, I have family members that are conservatives, and they don't want to have anything to do with libertarianism. They love me to death, but I mean, they, they're just, I'm never going to convince them, and I'm not trying to convince them. I think what our job is to, is to find a libertarian. Find people that are naturally attracted to ideals and principles and liberty and libertarianism uh, because you're out there because you and I were out there and, and we discovered libertarianism. And I think if we keep focusing our energies on finding those groups and then you know bringing them together in, in this gigantic critical mass of liberty loving people, we can then bring this shift in society we all want. I mean there's a reason why totalitarian dictators try to shut people like you and me down. And that's because they know the power of ideas on liberty to bring a shift in society, even if it's by an infinitesimally small minority people. Yeah. You know, a couple of, I think it was two months ago in, in your booklet, the Freedom of Future Freedom Foundation booklet I get every month, and I, and I do it, by the way, um, there was a gentleman, I'm, I'm sorry, I do not remember his name, but what he did is he published the Republican platform. And I read the whole thing through, and he said, and, and basically, it's surprised you. I'll bet you thought it was the libertarian platform, and it was. It was a hundred percent libertarian, uh, or almost. I guess hundred percent to me. It seemed hundred percent libertarian. And he said, "Isn't that amazing that the Republicans violate every single pl- principle of that platform?" Yeah, well, the Democratic platform was the same way. I mean, they they were they were favoring free markets. You have Grover Cleveland vetoing in the late 1800s a farm bill that provided five thousand dollars in relief to Texas farmers who were suffering in a drought. 
And Cleveland, who was a Democrat, said, it is not the job of government to support the citizenry. It is the job of the citizenry to support the government. So he vetoed this farm relief bill. I mean, Democrats opposed at one time <laughs> the welfare state and favored the free market economy. Yeah. Yeah. So we can restore that. If Democrats were to restore, recall their heritage and the Republicans were to recall their heritage and give up this whole socialist apparatus and this imperialist apparatus, this interventionist apparatus, we could see a giant shift in yours and my lifetime here. The thing is, you never know what the catalyst could be. And so if you give up, obviously you're not going to win. But if you keep keep on keeping on, you never know when suddenly some unexpected catalyst brings about a shift toward libertarianism. And I think that's going to happen. Yeah, I, I it just seems that I it's very difficult for me to find someone to have a conversation with because they are so hell-bent in repeating what they hear on television. And when I try to backstep a little bit, get to the, the, the true problem, uh, it's rare that people say, you know, I never thought of that. That's a good point. They get angry. They get, they get, they get frustrated. It's like I'm not agreeing with them, thus I must be their enemy type thing. And, I, and, and the, 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 the problem I have with the groups that have the most problem with the teachers. Yeah, I think you can always tell when you start a conversation with someone whether they're so set in their ways and in their beliefs, there's a chance that they'll change or no chance of change. And you just have to decide whether you want to waste a lot of time and energy on what you conclude is a futile gesture. Uh, I mean, you might enjoy the debate and the interaction, but at some point you realize there is nothing I'm going to say that's going to change this person's mind. And oftentimes what I do is I just change the subject. I don't pursue it. It, it just wastes energy. That, that, that's what I was talking about. The positive energy is finding people who are receptive. Hey, tell me about libertarianism. I want to learn about it. I've heard about it. That's the person that you start right. sharing. Yeah. But the person that says, oh, you libertarians are crazy and blah, 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 blah. You're just wasting your time and energy. It's not for me. It's not worth it unless you want to just do for enjoyment and have an enjoyable debate. <laughs> well, uh, I've never had an enjoyable debate with someone who's uh, you know hell bent in 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 one area and 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 don't, doesn't want to listen. So uh, you know it's it's a, it's an exercise in futility. It's incredibly frustrating, especially when it's so clear as to what we should be doing. It's so clear how to solve our problems and everyone would save money um i i brought up the point that uh, people were so proud of what trump did with uh, north korea i said well go to north korea when at war with north korea technically i said if south korea has a beef with north korea let south korea you know speak to north korea and resolve their problems but first we have to close all the bases bring all our troops home and we'll save several million dollars year and maybe we can get our budget in order and that was explosive when I came to that that conclusion I mean I don't think any one of those people are talking to me anymore <laughs> oh yeah when you when you bring up the Korea thing with respect to Trump the pieces just go absolutely ballistic and they just block out of their minds that Trump was the one that started the crisis because um, North Korea says we're not going to start a war with you we've got these nuclear weapons to defend ourselves Against you, 
Yeah. And that's all we want for is yeah. it to stop the guy in the CIA from having a regime change operation here with an invasion. And, and, and you've got people like John Bolton that were calling for a regime change operation. <laughs> and you got regime change operation. <laughs> so Trump says, no, you will dismantle those or else I'm going to bring fire and fury to you. And they say, okay, bring the fire and fury to what you want to do. Yeah. So he, they essentially call their, his bluff. And he was bluffing, but, but oh, thank yeah. goodness he was bluffing. Yeah. So he goes to Singapore, and he, now that's not communist dictators his best friend, but people, <laughs> it was Trump that started the crisis anyway in the first place, and they're hailing him for probably the crisis that he started. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, very few people uh, understand that uh, North Korea is two-thirds the size in, in square miles, uh, two-thirds the size of the state of Oklahoma. And Oklahoma is not the biggest state in the union by any stretch. And when you consider, could you imagine if the entire United States was against Oklahoma? I mean, Oklahoma wouldn't stand a chance for war. And yet, we don't look at the facts. We don't look at where we are. And we don't look at the fact that they're 3,000 miles away. And they have no reason to attack us. If, if we start trading with them, why do they want to nuke us? I mean, it, none of what we're doing makes any sense. Our logic makes no sense whatsoever. It's illogical. And the solutions that we pose just seems to evaporate the situation and builds up the tension level. Absolutely. And the crux of the problem is the, is the alteration of the federal government after World War II into what we call a national security state. Right. And so you change a constitutionally limited republic to a national security state. What's a national security state? Well, North Korea is a national security state. So is China. So is, so is post-World War II the United States. And you hit the nail on the head. The Korean War was a civil war, no different from America's civil war. It was no business of the U.S. government. But the national security state, the CIA, the Pentagon said, oh, we have to get in. We have to butt in to another nation's civil war. They sacrificed some 50,000 American men dead, not to count even the maimed and the injured, in a war that was none of their business. And it's never been business of the U.S. government. Why is Trump negotiating peace treaty on behalf of South Korea when right. South Korea is the one that is involved in this civil war? <laughs> I mean, it makes no sense. And so, the, as you point out, the best thing that could ever happen just bring the troops home, leave Korea to the Koreans. The nuclear weapons would become irrelevant because they're there for defense only, defending against the Pentagon and the CIA. And if the Pentagon and the CIA are no longer going to threaten to invade North Korea, the nuclear weapons become irrelevant. I mean, they're, they're not going to attack South Korea with nuclear weapons and start a war when they, they want to unite the country. They know that if they nuclearize South Korea, they can't unite them because for centuries it will remain radiated. Right. The best thing is bring the troops home, leave them alone, let them work out their own civil war. By the way, that's exactly what should have been done in Vietnam, too. It was right. no different. It was a civil war, and the U.S. national security establishment, this new governmental structure, intervened like an international budinsky. Yeah, and, and now today, Vietnam is a major trading partner of the United States, and we're at total peace with them. You know, it, uh, we have an example staring us right in the face. Exactly. What, it, it, yeah. it's, 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 it's another Korea. Vietnam was Korea all over again. It's a duplication. And, and look what happened when we left Korea, it was uh, uh, Vietnam, 
right? We start trading with them, and now even and you hear all these horrible uh, these stories about how our troops now are visiting Korea. Uh, I'm sorry, Vietnam, apologizing. I mean, they go there in tears, saying, "What have we done to your wonderful country?" And those people there accept them, and they accept their apology. I mean, we wouldn't be as tolerant as that to anyone. And yet they're very forgiving. And uh, I, I, I don't see why we can't use these examples and why our mainstream television, our, you know, we have a media network, you know, that talks in one direction only. They will not allow these type of conversations to be broadcast on, made, on, on cable television or major, on the major channels. I mean, people would start thinking about it if they do, but you never hear these conversations. Every once in a while, you'll hear someone say, well, maybe Vietnam was, was a mistake. Maybe, you know, we should have done this. And that's about it. And it's, it, it's washed underneath the rug after that. But we, you don't hear any extensive conversation about that at all. No, you don't. You, you, you have them talking about how to tinker with the tyranny of the status quo, but they don't talk about fundamental principles. And, and look, Okay, you're right. They're, they've established diplomatic relations, economic relations with, with Vietnam. This was a, a communist regime that killed 60,000 American soldiers. It's still a brutal communist regime. Uh, but there's a sense of, well, okay, that's their system. Um, yeah. It's unfortunate people have to suffer it under. But we're not going to interfere with the, the ability of American people to travel and trade to Vietnam. That's the right position. You know, don't destroy the freedom and prosperity of your own citizenry just because they're doing something bad over there. Now, compare that to Cuba. You've got this long-time embargo, you know, how many decades now, a brutal embargo against the Cuban people. Why? Because they have a communist regime. Well, so does Vietnam as a communist regime. And keep in mind that the Cuban embargo is an attack on our freedom, too. They put us in jail if we go to Cuba without permission and spend what is supposedly our own money there. How can you reconcile that? How can you reconcile fighting communism with communism? Because when you're controlling people and what they do with their travel, which is a fundamental right, freedom of travel, what they do with their money, that's as communistic as you can get. Yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting is that the, the people who are suffering are the Cuban people, and we have no beef with the Cuban people whatsoever. The lives in Cuba are, are living like king queens. I mean, they're, they're, they're not suffering at all. So we're punishing the people who want to be friends with the United States. The United States wants to trade with the Cuban people, and yet we can't get the guns to, to, to move in either direction. And, and one is at, as much at fault as the other. And, but if you say that, you know you're communist. <laughs> well, of course. But then when you throw Vietnam in their face and say, well, our Americans are free to travel to Vietnam, tour and visit and spend money there without getting special permission. They look at you befuddled and they're like, well, I don't want to talk about that. that that's right. <laughs> well, Jacob, our time's almost up. I don't want to see you sort of cut off. So let me the last couple of minutes to you to wrap things up for us, okay? And then um, and we do, do hope that you will accept the invitation to return at a later date. I'd want them to get that in. I would love it. And and I always love being on your show, Joe. And if you want to get more of what we do at the Ethereum Freedom Foundation, and our particular methodology is to present an uncompromising moral, philosophical, and economic case for libertarianism. We believe in ideas and ideals, 
principles. That's our our methodology. And we have a weekly internet show called The Libertarian Angle that I do with Professor Richard Abilene, who teaches right. economic citadel. And so I would invite people to come and subscribe to our daily publication called Future Freedom. That's free. As you mentioned, with a monthly publication that's by Well, ideas shift society, and that's what the Future of Freedom Foundation is about, shifting American society to freedom and prosperity. Right. Thank and you peace. so <laughs> Okay. Thank you so much for being our guest this evening, and we do hope to see you again in the near future. Thank you much. Right. Thank you very much, Joe, and good luck, and up the great work. Thank you so much. This is the end of today's broadcast. We'd like to thank our sponsors for the financial support. And we'd like to thank you for listening in. You can further the cause of liberty by recommending this program to your friends and let us hear from you. Our email just as comments at libertytalkio.com. Remember, as my wife say, you're either allowing your liberties to be taken away or you're striving to protect them. Unfortunately, there is no middle ground. Until next time, this is Joe Cristiano. You've been listening to Liberty Talk Radio. Stay well. Stay tuned. about to hear a revolution in talk radio liberty talk radio where the critical thinking will defrag your mind of propaganda ridden viruses induced by mass media news programming no bs here just the facts and now we present to you america's quintessential iconoclastic anomaly wow I hit start show. Gotta be